Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Defense Deconstructed on the CGAI Podcast Network. I'm your host and president of the Canadian Global Affairs Institute, Dave Perry. On today's show, which we're recording February 15th, 2022, we're talking about the Independent Review Panel on Defense Acquisitions and their most recent annual report with the panel's chair, Vice Admiral Retired Larry Murray, and member Dr. Philippe Lagasse from Carleton University. This discussion is made possible thanks to the support of the Department of National Defense's Mines Program. Larry, Phil, welcome to Defense Deconstructed. Thanks for having us. So uh, before we kind of get into some of the substance of uh, the most recent annual report and a little bit about the panel's uh, observations about uh, the, your lens into uh, defense procurement in Canada over time, uh, Larry, I'll ask you to start and just take a, a couple of minutes to talk about what it is that the Independent Review Panel for Defense Acquisition actually does and what the remit is within Canada's defense procurement system. Sure. Well, maybe I'll, I'll start that by giving a little bit of, uh, of the background and, and then maybe I'll throw it to Phil to talk a bit about what we actually do during an engagement. So, so the, uh, the prior PDA really was a core element of the defense procurement strategy in February of 2014 and got underway in May of 15. So we've been in operation now for six and a half years and the intent was to establish an independent third party challenge function for major defense projects within uh, within DD and specifically to help validate requirements for major defense projects for providing independent advice to the minister and the deputy minister and indeed to other involved ministers our purpose is really to bring greater clarity and credibility at the front end of the procurement process prior to uh, you know, senior uh, uh, minister involved ministers making decisions about uh, approving a project moving into the definition phase when, which is when they start spending serious money on, on these things. So we really are focused on the front end uh, during the options uh, analysis phase, which is about two years normally, it can be shorter, can be longer, but that's really our focus. And in fact, uh, Phil joked yesterday that we perhaps would have been better called the independent um, review panel on defense requirements as opposed to defense acquisition, because that's that's really our focus is on the, uh, on the front end of the process and understanding it. Um, and providing ultimately uh, credible feedback early on to senior decision makers about our views in a number of areas, which we'll talk about. Um, and at the end, uh, providing formal advice to, uh, to the minister on the particular project. Uh, from the beginning, the panel has been uh, five GIC appointments, although we have gone up and down because of individual kind of medical issues and so on. But basically the model that was created uh, when Keith Coulter designed it and Dick Fadden was the, um, was the deputy, had uh, two former senior officials, uh, one with military background, two former senior executives from the defense or aerospace industry and one academic. And the current membership is myself as chair and I've been there since the beginning. Um, Martin Gagné, who is uh, actually a former ARI, coincidentally, but he's uh, he's actually a member of the panel because of his uh, 
17 to 20 years as a senior executive with CAE. Uh, Margaret Purdy was a member as the other senior official. She's recently left, so we're uh, we're looking for uh, for a, a replacement. Christine Covey is uh, is also an aeronautical engineer, private sector background, with senior executive experience with Airbus on the technology side in uh, in Europe, and she's a member of the Space Advisory uh, Board as well now. Um, so she's the second private sector person currently, and Phil has been the academic throughout the piece. So um, that the uh, in terms of what do we look at, we I could give a long list here, but basically we're gonna look at any D&D project that's uh, over a hundred million. Um, we do get uh, occasionally uh, uh, projects come to us because the minister wants us to look at it or the deputy minister wants us to look at it. But generally, the over 100 million criteria has been what has driven our workload. The one unique and interesting thing that's happened, I guess, is that in 2018, the Deputy Minister of Fisheries and Oceans approached the Deputy Minister of Defense to see if we could have a look at major Coast Guard uh, projects, starting with their fleet plan. And uh, it was agreed, and the two departments put together an MOU. So since then, we've also done. Uh, I think we did their fleet plan, uh, we did their polar icebreakers, we did something called their multi-purpose vessel, which is the workhorse of the fleet. And um, and we're just wrapping up with the program icebreaker, which is really their medium icebreaker replacement. So, and there's one other that's gonna come our way next year, something like that. So, um, and those ones we do exactly the same as well, exactly the same. The processes are a little different, but they've copied a lot of the DND processes, but we provide advice at the end of the day to the Minister of Fisheries and Oceans on those ones. In terms of the engagements, we see all of them at least twice, and in most cases, either at our request or at their request, and more often at their request, there being DND, um, we see them for supplementary engagements. But the first one is uh, the project comes through project identification, uh, moves into the options analysis phase with the approval of the Defense Capability Board chaired by the Vice Chief. And um, month or so after that, we do our first engagement which is called an IRP1. And then the project goes through uh, the options analysis, as I said earlier, for one to two years. And at the end of that, unless there's a supplementary engagement somewhere in there, we see it again, uh, just once they have got a selected option, uh, and they have a preliminary statement of operational requirements. There's another defense capability board that approves it to go forward. And we see it about month after that and if we're comfortable that's the point at which we write advice in terms of, of what we're looking for and um, how we come at the various engagements maybe i'll throw it to phil to um to talk to that which would probably be of interest to uh, the listeners thanks larry so as larry mentioned uh we do have two engagements rp1 that comes early on in options analysis and rp2 which is what you'll uh, see when we uh, finish options analysis and in preparation for advice to the minister. And maybe what I'll do is, is uh, first outline the, the basic things that we're looking at and how that's changed in terms of emphasis over the years. So the 
typically an IRP one. So our first engagement, we're going to be looking a lot at the strategic context, the policy fit basically of uh, the project. So does it have policy cover? Is it supported uh, through the capability-based planning process, through the policy uh, that's been enumerated by the government? And we'll also be poking around at capability app, trying to figure out what exactly is it that the forces need? What's the bare minimum that they actually need to meet? Um, and we'll start a little bit looking at what's, what are called high-level mandatory re requirements at IRP1, but really our purpose there is to try and guide them to better develop those as part of options analysis. So in part, the options analysis phase is the opportunity for the project to really refine their high-level mandatory requirements uh, in anticipation of going into definition. And we'll, we'll discuss a little bit how they're going to be looking at the options as well. So uh, typically at the beginning of the process, they'll have a, a, a nominal notion of how they're going to look at different options. Uh, and similarly with any kind of procurement considerations. So you might imagine some projects are going to have an FMS case, uh, foreign military sales, some are going to necessarily be competitive and that, that will already be there. But it's not typically what we're going to look at, at, at as part of that first engagement. The first engagement is really going to focus more than anything else on the policy piece, on the gap, and a little bit framing how they should go about thinking about their high-level mandatory requirements and their options analysis and procurement considerations in light of that. By the time you get to the RP2, and oftentimes there's a supplemental uh, engagement between the two, as Larry mentioned, just to make sure that um, we're satisfied with how the, the projects are progressing, or the projects may wish to, to, to get our feedback on how things are going. But um, by, by the time we get to two, the policy piece should be fairly well established. Similarly, the gap should be well defined. And what we'll be more focused on at that stage are the high-level mandatory requirements. Are they sufficient to what it is exactly that you're trying to do? What are you trying to accomplish? Because those will suppose are supposed to then be traceable, or that is the, the preliminary, preliminary statement of requirement should be traceable back to the high-level mandatory requirements. And then the, the statement of requirement will inform the request for proposals and so forth. So we're very much focused on the HLMRs, making sure that those are properly articulated. And at uh, IRP2, we're also going to be looking at, are you well set up for your options analysis? Have you thought those through? Uh, increasingly, as you might imagine, um, as money gets tighter, that options analysis discussion is going much more from um, procurement approaches to capability ladders and trying to figure out how do you make the most of the money you have available. So that's a little bit where it shifted. In terms of how those pillars and IRP ones and twos have changed over time, I think it's important to realize we were set up, uh, as Larry mentioned, prior to uh, the articulation of Strong, Secure, Engaged. So for the first year and a half about, we were operating uh, without uh, a defense policy prior, uh, aside from the CAN first defense strategy. So a lot of our work in those early few months was focused in on that policy piece, making sure that the policy was well understood and that the projects were well linked into the policy. Uh, as soon as SSE came out, though, um, you had a clear articulation of a number of initiatives, many of them tied into capability and, and capital projects, and they had funding, in many cases, uh, assigned to them. So our our focus on the policy piece became much simpler in a way, 
right? Because there, you could tie most of the projects we were looking at after SST to specific initiatives and there were specific dollar amounts uh, tied to them. So a lot of the work was making sure that the gap was still well articulated, that the HLMRs were well articulated and that, and that a proper uh, options analysis was being considered by the project. Now, interestingly, though, uh, as we as SSE is moving forward, and in, in a sense, this is a good news story, right, that a number, most of the SSE projects that we would have uh, been looking at, we've now seen. So we're now moving as a panel and as um, a procurement process generally into something of a post-SSE world, right, in the sense that uh, we're now looking at projects that had not yet been identified in SSE. And so we're seeing the resumption very much of that more hard policy focus at the front end, making sure that projects know, do they have the policy cover that they're seeking? Has the gap been properly identified? Is it well-founded in the capability-based planning process? And how does it fit within the overall SSE environment? Um, so that's been an interesting journey for us, and I anticipate that the panel, uh, for as long as it exists, will probably go through this kind of variation as different policy statements and updates come out. There will be some years where there's clear policy cover for projects and there's been earmarking of funds in other situations when a policy has uh, moved forward considerably, the panel will probably have to spend more time uh, getting clarity on the policy piece and on the funding piece. But that's pretty much where uh, how we've evolved. So if I could just uh, continue the, the thread on the policy piece a little bit uh, more, I guess a couple of things come to mind. One is um, strong, secure, and engaged was fairly atypical in being quite precise and actually enumerating numbered initiatives. And some of them were, were tied quite linearly to pro individual or, or groups of projects, um, which is not the norm. Most of Canada's other policy statements um, don't have anywhere near that level of precision. Uh, and certainly the, the funding construct got a lot more uh, developed over time. Um, and then set against it, as you said, it's now been, we're coming up on five years since Strong, Secure and Engaged uh, was published. Um, and presumably policy in the defense space hasn't stopped. So I guess, one, um, how do you adjust over time? So do folks get read in as new uh, memorandum to cabinet um, are passed providing new policy cover or, or government makes additional speeches? So give a bit of sense about how you update post strong, secure and engage what the policy frame uh, looks like. And I guess you maybe offer a comment about things like defense white paper, strong, secure and engaged uh, at times sort of get identified as things that um, whiny academics ask for, for precision. But I think what you're, you're articulating are, are very real application of how policy um, itemization from government and, and the degree to which is more precise helps a bunch of other parts of government kind of fit into ways that are uh, harder to do or less obvious to do if you don't have a high level document that, that identifies what the government's asking. Phil, do you want to? Yeah, I'll start very quickly. As you've identified, there's going to be certain policy pieces that will be provided through memorandum cabinet. Uh, that that avenue is open, and there have been instances in the past where we've relied upon that for policy cover. If there are questions even about what's an SSE, some of those things uh, are articulated. And as you might imagine, there's going to be other big pieces that were identified in SSE, but maybe not fully articulated that may require additional policy cover. But there are things like mandate letters, member added cabinet speeches, other things, anything that you would typically uh, understand as the articulation of government policy would be something that we would look for. 
Um, where it gets a little bit more complicated, obviously, is uh, where you, there isn't a clear speech yet, there isn't something as precise in the mandate letter, or you're trying to interpret the intent of SSE, because ultimately, you still want to go back to the, the intent, not simply the itemization, but it's making sure that that intent is well articulated and well justified, uh, so that you know that you're focusing on the, the projects that are um, most aligned with what the, the, the missions that have been given to the forces by the government are. Um, and in terms of you know, the, the wider question here of how, how that fits together for the, the panel's mandate, I would simply close by saying that's really one of the core reasons why we exist, is making sure that projects are well understood to fit with government's intent. Uh, and if there's questions about that, right, this is part of our role, even at the front end, is to say, well, is that exactly what the government wants, exactly what we're looking for? Uh, does that fit with the vision that's being put forward here? Um, and that's a fairly useful function, I'd say, uh, insofar as I don't think people understand this as well, but policy really is key to procurement. <laughs> we tend to almost talk about procurement as if it's policy agnostic. When in reality, uh, it really is the starting point. And I can't overemphasize this enough. In the absence of, of a policy, uh, you don't have guidance on where our procurement is going to go. So that role that, that we're now going to probably see more of is fairly significant uh, for the process to succeed. Larry? Um, yeah, I'll, I'll just maybe um, make a few other uh, um, uh, comments in, in the same area. Um, one, I, I would have to emphasize that the department does a great job of keeping us in the loop in terms of the kind of uh, mini policy decisions or priorities and that sort of thing. In fact, we have a quarterly meeting with the chief of force development. Uh, we also have the freedom uh, which we exercise to ensure that we're up to date on intelligence as a Intelligence is actually really handy to us because it's an objective kind of a third party look at all of this. The other observation I would make, and we may get into it a little bit, is the, is the ongoing um, effort uh, to make pro procurement more agile because of the speed of technology and the time frame for a, a traditional acquisition. To some extent, that's true of policy as well. In other words, you have a policy uh, comes out in 2016. We're now in 2022. Uh, um, there are a lot of technological advances that have happened since the various initiatives, or at least the equipment initiatives in uh, SSE came out. And a number of those may certainly impact on the cost factor and uh, those sorts of things. Or in the case of SSE, uh, because it wasn't well enough advanced, something like NORAD modernization um, in play recognized as a policy imperative, but not, not part of the, uh, the overall funding package. So there are a lot of moving parts that move forward. And it's an interesting question. I agree entirely with what you said, Dave, about the value of a policy uh, statement. But uh, to some extent, the speed of technology, the speed of how fast the world is changing now in many respects. I'm not sure that most of us would have thought we would be sitting where we are today, wondering whether there's going to be an invasion of the Ukraine tomorrow. Um, so I don't know whether more nimble policy is also um, 
you know, perhaps a requirement or maybe those countries who have a regular update on an ongoing basis. I, I think that our experience with SSC would argue for, it certainly makes life a lot easier in deciding where departments are gonna spend their money, in our case, the Defense Department. Um, and I'll just add one other thing for listeners if they hadn't seen. Um, so some of the the kind of the, the parts that you review, um, the high-level mandatory requirements and the different options analysis. Uh, last week, the government released a request for information on the Canadian multi-mission aircraft that actually I thought went into more detail and more clearly enumerating uh, some of those um, aspects that if folks want to go on uh, buy and sell.gc.ca uh, or the new Canada buys, you could actually download that and take a look at, at some of those pieces uh, that you review, um, which is a good segue to, to take you into the 2019-2020 annual report. Um, that's the fourth that you've published. Uh, there are a couple of pieces about that one that are unique, including the fact that you've enumerated uh, the different projects up until the release of that report last summer that you've actually reviewed. Um, the Canadian Multi-Mission Aircraft Project was one of those, along with, with uh, several dozen others. Um, I guess, give us uh, folks listening a sense of what was in that report. I'm, on my read, uh, most of the projects of note in Strong, Secure, and Engaged um, had been, uh, have, you've actually had a chance to look at, um, but, but also a, a quite a breadth of projects. So some of the higher visibility ones that people would have paid attention to, uh, as well as uh, some uh, infrastructure projects that which not to downplay the importance of infrastructure or not, but I think I would have been pretty hard pressed to name uh, more than two of them uh, that you've had a look at. So give a bit of a sense from that report about what you're articulating there, recognizing that it is, um, as I mentioned, the fourth one that you've released since the panel has been operating. Yeah, I'll kick it off. And then again, I'll, I'll throw it to uh, Phil uh, uh, to cover uh, some of our observations. Um, but I, I would say it, we have put out those reports. Uh, it's kind of self-inflicted at some level. And they're about eight, every 18 months. And we found them extremely useful. Uh, we do a survey uh, a questionnaire, and that's become more sophisticated. We now have kind of more inputs. And because of the uh, six and a half years we've been in play, uh, central agencies have had more exposure as well. So, and obviously you mentioned the Coast Guard. And so in this survey, we had Treasury Board officials input. We had um, Coast Guard officials input as well as the the wide range of DD one uh, folks and we have a retreat normally around that so so the exercise of putting together the report actually for us from a panel perspective has been kind of a every year to 18 month refresher for us and actually some of the processes we follow fall out of uh, those cycles as well so the report in addition to being the report is actually a milestone for us to, you know, pause for a minute and just see kind of where we're at, where other folks um, who have been exposed to the work of the panel are at, and what can we do better to uh, to execute our our mandate. Uh, for example, one small thing, but it's turned out to be a very significant thing. Leading up to this one, uh, the surveys indicated that people, particularly the folks uh, in the sponsor shops and so on, really wanted, valued kind of our feedback 
and we realized we we kind of weren't providing it uh, in a formal sense uh, after an IRP one. So we now provide a formal covering letter that I signed to the vice chief with a very detailed uh, annex. And that goes to the vice chief, but it also goes to other senior officials, including the sponsor. And we've got very positive feedback on that. And it's actually very helpful to the vice chief and the CFD because before a project goes to IRPT, they look at that and, and it's very handy what the panel, I mean, it's a glimpse of the obvious, but we discover those glimpses of the obvious at these 18 month encounters. And every time we've picked up on things and, and made what we do uh, better and more useful, I would say to folks. In terms of the actual report itself, um, you know, the, it, as, as you would expect, it's got the kind of background, the mandate, the composition, the review criteria, quarries of interest, and fill covered. I think in our uh, in the comment about comments around where the panel came from, we covered uh, kind of a, a good bit of that, including the engagement uh, approach stuff that we didn't mention in response to that. Though there's uh, there is a fairly uh, interesting um, section on IRPDA activity, which indicates that since 2015. We've actually uh, initiated 70 project reviews, which would now be, uh, I think, close to 75. And each of those project reviews, uh, the majority, about two thirds of them, have been three encounters uh, because they ask or we ask, but as a minimum, two encounters to each. And we, at the time of the report, had provided 47 pieces of formal advice, mostly to the Minister of Defence, as I said, a few to the Minister of Fisheries and Oceans. Uh, we also, this time, were interested about how we made out during the pandemic, because uh, we were really worried that we might even have to shut down. But the reality was, because of the nature of our work, we were able to do, we were able to keep pace with the department uh, flow of major projects and a, a good bit of that we did online and not with Zoom, but with teams uh, similar. Um, but we also uh, were able, thanks to D&D &D and great support from across the country to get access to secure video um, uh, transmission centers here in Ottawa and in the other places where panel members are. So when we had to discuss advice or when we had to discuss a uh, classified project, we were able to do that with secure facilities. So we we managed to uh, to actually keep pace and uh, and keep pace with the department. So we're quite uh, quite pleased about that. An interesting factoid. Um, is that in 2019 and 2020, the projects we looked at uh, value totaled over 25 billion. So um, um, we found that interesting. And I guess another interesting factoid is that we've looked at, or in terms of the current capital program, about 60% of the uh, projects we have or will look at, um, and that's, kind of all of them uh, recognize when we only look at the ones over 100, 100 million. Uh, I mentioned the stakeholder survey. Uh, these things are golden from our perspective and they've got better over time. Uh, the question, our questioning has become, I think, better. Um, obviously the people we're dealing with, many of them 
uh, are more familiar uh, with the panel than they were at the beginning if they were there. And it's a mixture of, uh, of folks. Um, if the forces are doing their job, there is a churn there because they do want to ensure that they get their best operators into this business for a couple of years after they've been flying fighters or driving tanks or whatever. So there'll always be that churn and that's healthy. Uh, but that also means that the, uh, that the education process both by D&D &D and to some extent their exposure to the panel and, and kind of what we do is very important in their development from the force development uh, side of things. As I said, we, we make improvements based on, um, uh, based on feedback we get. So right now we're trying to, um, trying to have a look at could we do infrastructure projects a little differently and a little more uh, usefully because they are different, their governance structure is a bit different. So we've had a couple of sessions since this report with the ADMIE and, uh, and his folks to see if we can enhance, uh, enhance our work in that area. And uh, HLMRs are always kind of a work in progress. I think they always probably will be and Phil will probably talk about that in the, a few in a few minutes, but the reality is that the discipline at the front end of the project and trying to sort those things out is worth its weight in gold. Like it really is extremely valuable, extremely important. And the guidance on them has got better as a result of feedback and interaction with CFD and, and all that kind of stuff, notwithstanding the fact there are still challenges around consistency. And I think the most important part of, uh, of our report from our perspective, maybe because of the discipline we have to go through to figure out what they are, is, the, is our observations. Uh, and this year we had um, five, I think, and maybe I'll, I'll throw it to Phil to talk a, a bit uh, about some of those. Not surprisingly, we've covered a little bit of this in the, uh, in the earlier discussion, but... Um, but the uh, the observations are really uh, an interesting uh, barometer on where we're at, where the system's at, and uh, and they're, we find that, as I say, a useful process, and hopefully the readers find it useful. Uh, the force development community, in particular. So, Phil, do you want to talk a bit about our observations this year? Yeah, thanks, Larry. Uh, one thing I'll say before I, I get to the observations, uh, I'm. I think we're pretty proud of the fact as well that uh, this is a report that includes uh, the names of all the projects that we've reviewed. Uh, so that was a, an important addition as well. Um, having that laid out along with the tables and the information that we have in there should give readers a, a pretty good overview of what has what is an options analysis uh, where is it going? Uh, you'll see we also identify which projects have, have gotten advice. So if you want to know uh, what's made it through options analysis uh, and what projects have gotten advice, then that's available for the first time in, in this uh, latest report, which is uh, a big boon for transparency, I think, and uh, a testament to what we're able to, to provide also in the public domain, even though we are a, a panel that advises the, the minister primarily. Um, the, the observations that we include, as, as Larry mentioned, one thing that this does allow us to do through this annual report is uh, take a higher level view of the overall 
capital program and how it's been going based on our work and uh, provide some, some sense of uh, for the wider readership of where things are at in terms of options analysis. So some of the key things that we noted um, this time around, and it does touch on some of the things that I've discussed, but policy, the policy foundation is becoming far more important. We're really emphasizing the need, uh, noting that projects are gonna have to uh, keep moving on things such as green and government gender-based analysis plus, uh, and uh, in light of the fact that SSC, the initiatives are, are starting to be completed uh, and that you know, money is going to be tight and presumably post-pandemic, it's going to be even tighter, uh, needing to, to have a really robust project prioritization system to figure out what is it that we really need to do and where do you next spend uh, the money that you have. Um, so as Larry mentioned, in an ideal world, maybe there would be regular policy updates as some of our allies do, but in the absence of that, uh, you do need internal mechanisms to ensure that you're seeing the right things and that you're spending your dollars on the right things. Um, in terms of the capability gap, one thing that we've uh, stressed throughout our existence uh, is an expression that's somewhat common around the panel, which is uh, explain, don't tell. So. Um, these are, you know, options analysis is done by subject matter experts, uh, and they, they know their business fairly well, but as with any expert, uh, they don't always, uh, explain to the average reader, uh, what it is that they're trying to do. So we really try and encourage, uh, the projects to think about those who may not have deep military background or in particular background in their particular environment to better articulate to the reader what is the exact nature of the gap right what is what is it that you actually need and so uh, this involves a lot of uh, encouraging to consider operational vignettes or historical data that they can use to to better articulate the the very nature of the capability gap that they're facing in some cases visualizations whatever it is so that uh, somebody who picks up the project documentation understand exact understands in you know layperson's terms what what's being articulated, right? So the understanding is something that we've stressed quite a bit. As Larry mentioned, uh, when it comes to high-level mandatory requirements, those uh, re remain a, a, a work in progress, and they're always going to be a work in progress in, in part simply because. You know, this is a, a difficult concept in some cases to, to apply perfectly and uniformly in all cases. It's going to vary quite a bit and that's quite, uh, that's to be expected. Nonetheless, we continue to encourage the projects to ensure that your high level mandatory requirements can be traced to your capability-based planning process and that you're writing high level mandatory requirements that provide the government and also um, those further down the path in the procurement process with the proper guidance as what exactly is the project hoping to achieve and how do you know when the project has succeeded. Um, there may be some cases as you know we're learning where when you're out of options analysis maybe the HLMRs not all of them may be met but at least that there's a marker there such that you know a future project will have to address that gap. Right, so it serves that function as well, just making sure that there's accountability within the procurement process so that shortfalls are addressed. Um, so we're really stressing the importance of this as uh, a decision-making and accountability mechanism that any project needs to have and that the overall procurement process needs to be able to be mindful of. Finally, uh, two other ones uh, in options analysis, as I mentioned, we're moving more towards um, 
trying to encourage process projects to move away from procurement options. So compete sole source, FMS, whatever it is, and to think more in terms of capability ladders in a lot of cases um, so that it's, it's better. Um, you know that you don't have to stick around in a way, in a sense, when, when money gets tight, you know, there's a path forward for, okay, if you, if you are constrained, what is your option space and how are you going to delimit and, and be clear, move the project forward based on how you're able to meet your requirements the, based on the, the funding available. So that is something that we're very much encouraging. And we've, we've uh, since the progress report come out, came out, seen some really interesting work in capability ladders and how they're being developed as well. So that's, uh, that's an encouraging sign. Uh, finally, one thing that we've been made aware of, and Larry was talking about it in terms of policy, but agile procurement, and Dave, um, the CJI published a, a report about this a couple of years ago but trying to ask how do you add greater agility into a procurement system uh, for large capital projects, especially in, in matters that deal with um, IT or regulatory upgrades uh, and things of that nature that move at a very fast pace and at a pace that simply can't be met by a traditional uh, capital system uh, governance structure. Right. So is there a way to try and add in greater flexibility and, and agility, particularly when you're dealing with technologies uh, and upgrades that really happen on a far more cyclical basis and where you're no longer or you, you can't realistically uh, plan for a 10, 15 year window to acquire the new capability? So we're being kept abreast of that and we're mindful of the fact that uh, the government as a whole is looking into agile procurement and we're encouraging uh, the department to uh, to demonstrate you know how they might fit within that that, that construct within their own uh, acquisition and it's uh, something that we really further uh, would like to, to see exploration experimentation how this is going to work and we've seen uh, a couple of areas where it seems promising so we'll uh, we're hoping that there's going to be further innovation there. I think that's a good uh, point to, to pick up on it and expand a little bit. And that, so that as part of the, um, and I think um, uh, it's great for somebody that looks for, for data uh, and during COVID that's become increasingly scarce on this, that uh, lots of good information in this report, uh, including you've got a figure here enumerating the, the full set of capability sponsors that have submitted projects that you've reviewed. Um, so in our system, it's not just that you've got the Army, the Navy and the Air Force that um, are what's called capability ability sponsors that are basically putting forward their projects, uh, but you've looked at projects from, for the um, data innovation and analytics component of the department, the information management, um, chief military personnel, as well as you mentioned uh, infrastructure and, and um, ADM itself, uh, the special forces command. Could you give a bit of perspective um, how, so you've seen a, a wide breadth of projects. Can you offer anything, uh, I guess, to, to listeners about um, how they should think about procurement writ large in its entirety. So I guess in my observation, an awful lot of the focus in the heat and light gets put on, you know, probably two or three, maybe half a dozen at most, maybe 10 projects out of a defense capability blueprint and strong security engage, which enumerated a couple of hundred, over a couple of hundred. Can you offer any kind of comments about qualitatively beyond the ones that just get all the oxygen? Like, what, what does procurement look like across the DND CAF in its totality, and not just the things that, not just the projects that you see making the newspapers? 
I, of those I, buses I still read them. I'll kick that off and throw it to Phil and then maybe follow up as well. Um, I, I guess from my perspective, I, I would have to say at the outset um, that to remind that we actually uh, focus entirely on the front end of the process. So uh, we've looked at 70 major projects of all different types of, as you said, and at the beginning, you're less confident about whether this is a systemic issue you're, you're looking at, but after you've looked at 70 of them, you start to get a feel for the forest and, and all of that. But the, the, the chunk of the forest that we're getting a few of is early growth. Um, so we're not in a position to talk about, you know, implementation. Obviously that's Troy or uh, people, people like that, although, you know, uh, we've been pleased that um, when they do need to adjust HLMRs in definition or whatever, we are part of a feedback loop and that has been, that has been quite helpful. I guess one takeaway for me, it's interesting, um, uh, in fact, we were kicking around something like this uh, last week during, uh, during one of our meetings, which projects are, are tougher. The reality is that every one of these things has a kind of an individual personality when you get north of 100 million. And um, I mean, HLMRs are frequently uh, a challenge and some of the, um, in an interesting way for me personally, and I'm not speaking for the whole panel, when you start looking at something like a military pay system or something like that, that's quite different than looking at a tank or a C6 machine gun or, or whatever. So there's a little bit of, a, of an adjustment for us around some of those. But it's kind of sometimes the really basic stuff that I think has been a challenge. And, um, and that is that maybe not surprisingly, um, HLMRs, for example, are really looking at the tank or the airplane uh, or the ship, not necessarily at how many of them do you need and how does that number um, play out in, uh, in terms of meeting or not meeting the capability gap and what is the right number. And we've, uh, at various times with trucks or whatever, uh, trying to figure that out is a bit of a challenge. It's less of a challenge if you can count on concurrency of ops page 81 and the SSE as being valid. But when money starts to get tight and the organization has to make some tough priority calls, um, that number piece of the puzzle is challenging for, for us. Um, so it's... it's uh, uh, I, I think overall, I would have to say uh, from our, the chunk we get to look at though, uh, we've seen progress uh, for a variety of reasons on, on the policy foundation pit as, uh, as, as Phil mentioned, but in terms of areas where the staffs that we see are involved, sorting out the capability gap, sorting out the HLMRs, although that's still a work in progress, moving up by seller lease to, you know, capability-based options, coming up with an option with a credible analysis. I, I would say over the six and a half years that Phil and I have been there, we've seen progress, you know, and recognizing that's in the context of the forces still doing their job of switching out key players in this part of the procurement thing, because they absolutely do need to have 
current operators um, to ensure that they get the best kit that they can to meet whatever the capability gap in a particular area is based on recent experience in the field. So, so I would say overall, Dave, our impression is very positive. The department has bent over backwards to get us the information. Um, they listen, they actually, I wouldn't have said this six and a half, I would have been surprised six and a half years ago to say that they actually, in many cases, want these engagements because, you know, the panel model is pretty unsophisticated. You got five semi-informed people who care, who read all the documents. We come together and figure out what are the questions we kind of agree on. Um, and we force ourselves as well to have consensus advice at the end of the day and there's a lot of merit in that very basic model around complex issues and com complex problems. So, uh, so I wish I had to use some version of this in earlier lives in various settings. But anyway, I'll, I'll maybe go to Phil to uh, provide a more eloquent answer to that question. So Phil, interested in your thoughts in the same space. I mean, I'd add a couple other uh, flavors to this. On, on my read again, looking at the, the data you presented, you've looked at as many, um, you know, air quotes, cheap projects, ones under 250 million. Uh, you actually looked at more of those than you have ones that over are over a billion bucks. So big kind of spread in terms of the, the um, if you use money as a proxy for complexity or, or um, other things that money can indicate in terms of political interest, big spread in that case. Uh, and then uh, to echo Larry's point about the, the continuity of the panel, um, by my math, there have been eight vice chiefs of defense staff um, that you would have interacted with during the time the panel has been up and running. So you folks have more continuity and, and uh, longer term perspective on some of this than uh, a lot of the people involved in that part of the system at defense. So uh, some, just some thoughts about what you've seen over time um, and some perspective about what the full picture of procurement at the part of it, uh, of that journey that you look at has looked like. Yeah, and thanks, Dave. I think uh, just to leverage some of what Larry said, it's actually quite fascinating. You're not going to find a clear correlation, let's say, between a dollar amount and a project that's very clear and, and obvious and whatnot. You'll sometimes, this is something that's always fascinating to me, there may be a project that's closer to the 100 million but it's just, it's really well written. It's very clear. It's very well done. <laughs> and you feel very confident about it. Uh, whereas you may have some that are closer to the billion mark that, you know, you, before you, the first engagement, you start worrying, oh, we got real concerns about this. So there, there's not necessarily a clear correlation between uh, dollar amount and clarity on some of these things. That said, another thing that I'll point out is, and I think this speaks to Larry's uh, point about the fact that there's, more confidence uh, than I think I would have had as well starting out six and a half years ago, which is we'll have a lot of consternation sometimes about what we're reading in the documents, uh, but the value of just being able to sit down with people for two to three hours and you find out what the knowledge actually is in the room, that they know what they know, and just getting them to realize that they need to express what they know more clearly and in a manner that somebody who's outside of the process can understand. Uh, and that has value in and of itself, right? The, the other thing that I you know, will pick up thinking about the, all the projects that we've looked at over time, as I mentioned, is the, the importance of policy um, and not ignoring that when we're discussing procurement and not ignoring policy as it pertains to requirements. 
that this really does matter. And you, we shouldn't think that policy is static and that you know requirements are obvious. In a lot of cases, you're going to, you really do want to be clear on why you need something and how it fits in with the missions. Um, and I think we've been useful in some cases, uh, pushing back a little bit in some of those areas of saying, you know, is this, does this align with what your policy is saying? Um, can you provide us greater certainty that this is actually government intent? And things of that nature and that's a useful function as well of providing that challenge function and even more than anything else having projects realize that they will have to answer that these types of questions even that provides um, a degree of robustness that i think is valuable and uh, that the panel has seen gotten better over time and the final thing i'll say is you know we still run into to some areas where um Obviously, the, the, the challenge of, of cost and budgets is perennial, and it will never go away. Uh, and it's trying to get everybody, get projects and the, the wider organization in the headspace of, okay, knowing that that's the case, how do you prepare yourself and your system so that things can keep moving and that you work with the amounts that you have and that things don't stall? Because as your own work has shown, Dave, uh, over the years, you, know, you don't want to end up in a situation where you just, everything grinds to a halt because you run into an obstacle. I mean, at some point, you need to, to have systems in place and mechanisms that allow for the, the overall program to move forward, knowing that you're never going to have perfection on costs and whatnot, but you have adaptability. And I think um, one thing I will say is that the, the organization as a whole has gotten much better at that. And that's a really positive development of being able to see, you know, when we first started uh, uh, a very robust capability-based planning process, a funding construct, moving into greater understanding of how you deal with cost constraints, how you deal with uh, requirements as they shift based on that, things are starting to come into place that are very positive and are uh, at least indicate to me that the, the overall procurement system is getting back on its feet uh, after, as you've written, decades of, of difficulty in terms of capacity and staffing and expertise. Um, and the, the last thing I'll, I'll just add to that is the capacity issue. I think this is one where uh, we have noticed that this is, uh, capability is not only equipment and it's people, uh, and it's knowledge, and this is as true when it comes to a procurement capability, your ability to procure. Uh, capacity is, is always going to be a challenge, uh, given the amount that we're trying to recapitalize and, and the dollar amounts that we're, we're looking at. But in spite of, the fact, of that fact, the organization um, manages to pull off quite a bit. Uh, so I, I, overall, I think it's a good news story, even if naturally there will always be edges. But it's, uh, I think, just to refer back to, your, to the very first part of your question, um, the big projects that get a lot of heat and light and attention, you know, give you a very particular view of what, what defense procurement is about. And it, it oftentimes, what, what bleeds leads in, in the procurement context, it's uh, what, what's, what's broken gets the most attention type of thing. Uh, but as we've seen, and as I hope our list that in the progress report shows, there's a lot more going on back there than just the big projects that get the headlines. Um, the fact of the matter is that the, the overall portfolio is moving forward. 
Uh, it's not without its blemishes. It's not without its shortfalls. It's not without its problems. But comparatively speaking, uh, overall, what we've seen is, is a system that is seems to be on track, at least within the options analysis phase, to be meeting uh, some of the, the high-level policy initiatives that have been set out. Well, Phil, Larry, uh, thanks for taking the time to join us today to, to talk about the Independent Review Panel for Defense Acquisition, uh, its most recent report and some of uh, the work that you folks do uh, for the Government of Canada. Uh, the last question I'll, I'll ask, uh, Larry, I'll start with you. Uh, what are you reading these days? <laughs> uh, the two Michaels, actually. Um, I'm not sure what that's indicative of other than it's an interesting yarn. So, And it's more... Uh, I find it more uh, more like a novel than I thought I was going to find it actually. So, well done by Finn. Uh, interestingly enough, two days ago I picked up a book called "Emergency Powers in Australia." And, uh, <laughs> it's uh, it's quite an interesting read on where legal authorities lie and uh, how they deal with emergencies. I mean, it was written in the context of. Uh, the forest fires that they had there and, and where they find the legal authorities to, to use the military to do certain things. But it's proved uh, quite prescient in trying to figure out in government of Canada, we haven't, we're not quite as good as the Australians are in terms of figuring out where our authorities lie and what, what authorities mean. We're a little less robust on that front. So it's been a, an interesting read. Okay, well, I think that's a good note on which to end. Uh, Phil, Larry, thanks again for joining us today. Thanks for tuning into this week's episode of Defense Deconstructed, part of the CGAI Podcast Network. If you like the show, please remember to rate us and leave a comment on your podcast app. And if you like our stuff, please feel free to check out our donation page at cgaiica slash support. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. The podcast is brought to you by our team in Ottawa, and thanks go to our producer, Charlotte Duval-Antoine, and Drew Phillips for providing our music. I'm Dave Perry, and thanks for listening to this episode of Defense Deconstructed.